Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. I've already had a lot of great conversations about the weirdness and pleasure of being a writer. So please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you do enjoy these episodes, which go up every Monday morning without fail, please tell other people about them. I do this on my own, so it helps a lot. If you want to send me a suggestion for a future guest or comment on an episode or just find out more about what I am doing, I have books of my own, hint, hint, please go to nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Kamal Al-Solia Lee. Kamal is the author of the best-selling memoir, Intolerable, a memoir of extremes, published in 2012 by HarperCollins Canada, which has published all of his books to date. That book won the Toronto Book Award and was a finalist for CBC's Canada Reads, the Hillary Weston Writers' Trust Prize for nonfiction, the Lambden Literary Award for memoir and biography, and the Edna Stabler Award for creative nonfiction. His second book, Brown, What Being Brown in the World Today Means to Everyone, was published in 2016 and was a finalist for the Governor General's Literary Awards for nonfiction, the Trillium Book Award, and won the Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for political writing. His most recent book, Return, Why We Go Back to Where We Come From, was published in 2021 and was a book of the year for the Globe and Mail, the Hill Times, and the CBC. Author Essie Adugin called Return an urgent, thought-provoking read with much to say about our future. Kamal is currently the director of the School of Journalism, Writing, and Media at the University of British Columbia. Kamal and I talk about how his career as a journalist and theater critic informs his books, how he feels both privileged and compelled to write books that address difficult and serious topics, even if those don't make for the best beach reads, and how he owes much of his career success to a chance encounter with me about a decade and a half ago. That's a joke, by the way. So you have three books, uh, Intolerable, Brown, and Return. The question I have to start off, though, is do you feel like at this point you are almost ready for a book with a two-word title? Uh, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. I think um, I think I would I would I do like the the uh, the easy access, like for memory, for when a book has one title. Um, however, it, it's it's honestly it's strictly a coincidence. Um, but I, I did not plan it that way. But once I get to the third book, I actually um, I actually sort of wanted the word return, which my editor at the time thought it should have something more along the lines of homeland mm. and then uh, and then return why why do we return to where we come from in the subtitle but i, I had already written the book and the word return is just appears like about a million times so it just made no sense not to use that and it was the starting point of the book in my brain i had almost envisioned it being the other way mm -hmm. uh whereas you had a title that was maybe more you know a, an obscure deep cut from Shakespeare or something, one line or something. And the your editor or publisher was like, no, I like this sort of one word 
gets all gets the idea right out there. So it's interesting that it was actually the other way around. It's the other way around. And I think that has something to do with the fact that I am, I, for, for the longest time, for about 10 years, I was an arts and culture journalist, um, reviewer. Um, so I know what book stands out when they land on, um, on your, in your mailbox, like when the PR stuff arrives. I know which books, you know, stand out uh, for, you know, for me when I was, at least when I was a theater critic, I know which plays would stand out and which sort of communication will will just kind of jump from like hundreds of emails that you owe. Even like I was, I've been doing it for so long, it was pre-email on some level, like when you mm-hmm. get those press kits, uh, which ones stand out. And I think a title really helps. So, so part of me is, thinks about these things the way a journalist would react to them, which books should I cover, which book or which plays probably or movies or albums, whatever. Um, and it, and sometimes it's just random. It's just the things that that jump at you from uh, from an email. I find it interesting though that you say that because of your 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 work as an arts journalist, because of your background as a critic and as a as a journalist, you maintain sort of half a foot in that world or you at least have that understanding of like these how these books will be received out out in the world out in the quote-unquote marketplace or something mm-hmm. is that something you are able to silence while you're actually writing the book or do you have some feeling of like even when it comes to like the structure the length of chapters the language you're using do you keep a sense of like, no, this should be for, this is not an academic book, let's say, let's, this isn't a scholarly book. I want to mm-hmm. keep this accessible. I want to keep this for a, for a, you know, the common reader, whatever that's called. I mean, I do because um, I don't consider myself like a classic academic or the typical academic in the sense that I don't really publish peer review articles that, you know, seven people would read in, in a period of a decade or two. Um, um, I'm, I, I, I mean, I started as an academic. I had a, have a PhD in Victorian literature. Wilkie Collins is my sort of author, and um, and I, I stumbled into journalism when there were no jobs in academia. And ironically enough, there were lots of jobs in journalism in the nineties. Um, and so I've never thought of myself as an academic, and I always thought of myself as someone who uses some of the tricks of academia or some of the skills of academia in, in, in the sense of being able to research things really well, uh, being able to, you know, know my way around the library and know, I know what I want and how to get the books that, that probably will address the issues that I'm looking at. But I also have, I like to think, and other people may disagree, uh, I, I have the journalistic skill in terms of talking to people, interviewing, getting uh, getting them to talk to me and open up. And part of that is also writing in an accessible, uh, I avoid, I avoid uh, uh, academic jargon altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, I I mean, I, I use, a, I mean, I may put them in, quote, in quotation marks or I may just refer to what academics have said uh, because particularly with my second and third book, um, they they are very heavily researched and based, you know, like steeped in what 
you know, sometimes I feel quite cheapish because all these academics work and toiling up security and I come in and, and kind of raid their, <laughs> yeah. raid their books. Uh, and, uh, and, that's and, that's like uh, the Malcolm Gladwell thing, isn't it? He's sort of like, thanks for all uh, doing all the homework for all me. All the homework for me. And I come and I just put stories around them. Um, <laughs> uh, but, I, I, but I can never do that. Like I can never do uh, the work that they do, um, even though I have a PhD, uh, even though I am, uh, you know, a full professor, uh, but I, I I got here based on journalism and the works of journalism. That I, luckily I was at um, uh, TMU, formerly Rice, and um, and it's it's an institution that supported sort of creative work as e uh, equal to um, peer review or traditional academic work. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been made um, reached full professor. Has there ever been moments of tension, though? Because I will say, as someone, I also am a full-time professor yeah. at, at Humber College. And I did have some odd moments where when I was, I believe when I'd already been given my job offer, I was already very close to my to the age of 50. I'd been mm -hmm. working in the field, writing. I'd written two and a half books by then. And what do you mean a half book? Well, the the third one wasn't out yet. That's what oh, okay. it was. Right, it, was okay. it was it was <laughs> finished, but it wasn't it wasn't in a, in physical existence yet. But one of the main things that you know some person in the administration wanted was my transcript from Concordia mm -hmm. University, where mm -hmm. I graduated 1995, I think, and I literally had a moment of. Why do you want to see that? Like, it would almost be like wanting to see my first driver's license from when I was 16. It felt so irrelevant. Mm -hmm. But it gave me this feeling of like, there are some some organizations or people or departments in academia that see your life as academia. Mm -hmm. Then you leave and it's blah, 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 blah. And now you're back. Now you've mm -hmm. returned to the to the fold. Has there ever been some of those tensions of like, yes, you've published some books. That's great. Very impressive. Yeah. Well, let's see some, you know, scholarly, you know, some peer-reviewed articles. Let's see what you have done in our world. I, I mean, not so much in the school of journalism, to be perfectly honest, because the majority of my peers were also, well, actually, I wouldn't say the majority, but many uh, people, many others in my uh, in in the department were um, also doing creative work. So there was already. I mean, the school was called Communication and Culture. Right now, it's called the Creative School. Um, so it has always emphasized creative work. I, I would say that there was um, nonfiction in particular was not taken as seriously um, as, say, fiction in, say, in an English department or something. Mm. Uh, if you were a novelist, um, you had Randy uh, on your show, Birgoda. Uh, I mean, if you're a novelist uh, um, and an English professor, that probably was a very nice fit, as well as your academic work. But but has had something to do with the fact that even even within journalism, nonfiction remains um, this strange genre. Like, what makes it nonfiction? So why is it not just fiction? What is why what is What's the truth? Um, and all these issues, I think journalists, some journalists are still, and journalism instructors are still, you know, grappling with. A lot of your chosen medium is is creative nonfiction. You're kind of, again, mm -hmm. you're moving in and out of journalism, research, deep research, mm -hmm. interviews, scholarly work. But then the, the 
this sounds like such a crass word, but the package is mm. creative nonfiction. You're you're putting it together with stories and you're trying to make it uh, uh, more creative and readable. I did see um, an interview you did about Return specifically where you talked about not wanting it to be a memoir, not wanting it to be specifically or driven by memoir. You would thread it, thread your personal story through it, but it, well, you wanted it really to be other voices and to be external and to be all these other perspectives coming in. Is the finished version of Return the book you had envis envisaged? I mean, that book started as a... Uh like with the idea of return but in the context of the middle east in particular um and being um and looking at the politics of the middle east and returning to the middle east so it didn't have the global uh so i would i didn't plan to go to jamaica and um, right. and taiwan and, uh, and spain and other countries um it wasn't but like a I, survey. You weren't going to do this universal I survey. Do that yeah. survey. Uh, I did. I did include the Middle East, and obviously, right now, that final chapter about Israel and Palestine is particularly, uh, and for me at least, it just it you know what the current events are making me think of happier, uh, <laughs> more optimistic time, and that was only in 2019. Um, but. I, I I quickly realized that there were two separate books. The books that I wanted about to write about return is one, and a book about the kind of the changing politics and the changing uh, geopolitical, uh, or just a, like the, the, you know, particularly I was thinking more about the Saudi Iran rivalry over the you know the course of the Middle East and Islam. Um, that's a separate book. That's a book mm. that could be, um, which you know, I don't know if I'll ever write, but that's a book that is on my mind. Um, so I had to revert to the to the idea of a, a model that I've used in Brown, which is let's look at this concept in um, and how it applies in different settings. And I chose I chose settings that have that have geopolitical tensions that have um, like you know Northern Ireland. Um, uh, uh, you know, Spain. Uh, you know the the the, the you know the, the um, another example would be uh, Taiwan, and in relation to Sh right. China, and, and obviously the Middle East, uh, Israel, and Palestine. Um, so I, I I I that to me, it starts to answer. This is a really roundabout way of answering your question, and I apologize. <laughs> the okay. only way that, the only way that would connect these very different places would have been a personal narrative that threads through that like that will become the you know the the through line of the book and i would actually say that there was more of me than i would have envisioned originally for that book because mm -hmm. i i wanted it to be i mean when you when you I mean, a lot of my books are really inspired by writers like teres grasco and um and Doug, Saund Doug Saunders, and to some extent, early works, uh, uh, like sort of early nonfiction works from uh, from a kind of a number of sort of writers, and I would admit they're all male, uh, <laughs> all sort of mostly mostly you know Canadian uh, who are global in outlook. Who just, for example, Strap Hanger, uh, the book that Terrence Grass, mm -hmm. Grass uh, he, he and I were nominated for an award together, and we both lost. Um, <laughs> And uh, it was a real game changer for me. And Arrival City, uh, Doug Saunders' book from you know, almost, I can't believe it, almost 14 years ago now, um, 
and there's very little about themselves uh, in in their books. I mean, so I use the same model, but I think I think if you're a person of if you're a racialized writer, you can't help but bring yourself into into the narrative, even though if you're writing a a book about a, a global phenomenon and a book about geopolitics that for the most part don't involve me personally, except for that Middle East section. Um, I just could not help but just bring in myself. And I think there's an expectation that if you're a racialized writer that you will draw on your personal experience. And one of the reasons I wanted to avoid the memoir aspect because I wanted to draw on my experience but not on the trauma of that experience because I feel mm -hmm. I mined that field in my first book <laughs> and I do not want to return to that genre. Um, I have a very complicated relationship with memoirs in general. You mentioned uh, the sort of expectation that as a racialized writer you'll, you'll bring in more of your personal story and it actually makes me wonder about something that I've talked to with um, uh, writers like Alicia Elliott and Carly Baker, specifically about being Indigenous writers, which is that, uh, I mean, you're you're writing from the perspective of, of a gay man, a non-white gay man, a non-white gay immigrant man, which mm -hmm. you've written brilliant about the, the tensions within all of those, those terms and all of those adjectives. But I wonder... Is, has there ever been a concern with you or has there ever been a, a pressure or a worry about um, being set up as a kind of representative or a spokesperson for mm -hmm. one culture or another, whichever of those? And, mm -hmm. you know, I've talked to a lot of writers, not net, always on this podcast, but I've talked to a lot of writers who are um, non-white, racialist, non-gender conforming, who've had that experience of being at an event, a festival, or even on a jury and kind of looking down the dais and going, oh, I'm the I'm the box checker. And especially if you're someone who checks more than one boxes, yeah. <laughs> one of those oh, boxes, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're I, like, I oh, I'm 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 four <laughs> different boxes. I've checked, you know, part of my personal white privilege is that I know if I get invited anywhere, I check no boxes. <laughs> like I'm just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yet another white guy, another yet a straight white guy. But do you, have you encountered that? And do you have that worry sometimes where you get the invite and you're like, wait a minute, do mm -hmm. they want me as the writer of these books or do they want me as acceptable spokesperson for group A, B or C? Oh, that, that's such a great question. And it's such a triggering question on so many levels. But I apologize. In a, way, <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. No, I, I it's. You know, when I started journalism, right, like that's 1997, that was my first byline, appeared in Extra. Um, and almost, you know, uh, 27 years to the day, it was in January. And um, I never thought of myself as a racialized writer or journalist. And in fact, for the first maybe 10 years of my um, of my career as a writer, I just thought of myself as a as a writer. I think I think to some extent 9/11 had changed some of that because I mm -hmm. finally I became aware of what it means to be Arab and Muslim in a in a Western society after 9/11. I mean everything changed, but then it's kind of reverted to the usual. Um, okay, you're you're you know you're an up and coming writer, and I never thought of myself and, until I started writing books 
And that's when I realized that they, I can only sell books or I can only convince right, uh, publishers to take my books if I leaned on my multiple identities. I mean, it's mm. not a coincidence that the first book, um, my first book, Intolerable, is a kind of a coming out memoir in the context of the Middle East. I mean, talk about checking boxes. Um, that <laughs> is a book that checks a lot of boxes. Um, and and I I sort of lean into that again uh, with uh, with Brown, which is a very personal book, and it's a it, it's it's not a book that's written to to take any boxes. It's a book that came. It's probably the purest book in terms of where it came from and why I wanted to do it. Um, but I I actually think I can only speak for myself, but I do feel I I gave I gave a talk once and I called it the burden of representation. I think I stole that line from someone someone else, but or I've read that somewhere. And I feel that it is a burden to be speaking on behalf of, a, you know, if, if you just talk about Muslim and uh, Muslim particularly, it's like, I don't know, 3 billion people or more. And if you're talking about Arabs, again, more than a billion people. And if you talk about gay people, I mean, I'm not even gonna hazard to guess what, <laughs> what the number is, but um, it is a burden. Um, and sometimes I, like I would like to write a book about some of the things that interest me purely because they interest me. I'm really interested in 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 like for example, first humans, um, mm. in evolution. How did how did uh, what what were who were our ancestors? Um, it's not something I have an expertise in, but I love that um, that area. But I I sometimes wonder who will publish, who will take a book uh, from me on that subject. I don't really have strong credentials in it. Um, but also, I mean, and every now and then I get to experiment in things that are completely unrelated. And that's what I loved um, about being a reviewer, because, you know, you're assigned books. For the longest time, I was only getting the racialized books or the books mm. by indigenous writers. Um, and then after a while, I started getting the more sort of general nonfiction books um, uh, or, or even fiction. Um, but, but the thing about the burden of representation is that Either you do it or someone else will speak on your behalf. So particularly for the for gay for gay issues, because um when I wrote my book, I mean at the time there weren't a lot of first person narrative from sort of gay Arab or gay Muslims. And and that narrative was mostly written by um sort of what I would call Western expats who lived in Beirut or Cairo and wrote about their, you know, experience exploring the, uh, the underbelly of Cairo's gay scene or something like this. And so either they write your story for you or you write it yourself. And I think it is so much better to, you know, take up the pen or laptop and and do the writing yourself before someone else, I don't, I, you know, takes the story away from you. I, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but that's how no, I, I feel about yeah, representation. No, I, I, I can totally see that. I also wonder too, you mentioned the idea of like having these other interests and wanting to, you know, write about the other subjects that maybe aren't within that same realm that, that, that you have created for yourself with these three books. You did start as a, an arts journalist, as we mentioned, and you worked as a theater critic for many years and were, was a very respected theater critic. In fact, I oh. pulled this out. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. copy of Best Canadian Essays 2009, where you have the lead essay, uh, Too Poor to Send Flowers, The State of Canadian Theatre, where you declare basically Canadian theatre dead. Um, and, and, you know, as you know, I was also in that anthology. That's the one time I ever appeared and probably ever will appear in uh, Best Canadian Essays Anthology. I haven't appeared since in any of that. You're not alone. But you know what that, you know, for the two of us, why that book is significant. Because that's where we first met. For oh, the, yes. For the at the, we, did the, we did a reading. We, we to, did the uh, reading. We did yeah. a reading for this, yes. Yeah. And we, I, I was preceded by someone. I can't even remember who it was, and I apologize in advance if that person is listening, um, <laughs> who didn't do a great job. And then I came on, and people were laughing, and I walked out of the state. That was my first reading ever. Like, Oh, ever, really? As wow. A book. Um, yeah, because I hadn't published any books at that point. I was just a journalist, and, and, and nobody nobody asked journalists to read from their essays, right? So, um, except in this context, it was an anthology and a book launch. And um, I didn't know I didn't know you, but or, or knew of you. And then you came and 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 said something really nice. It's like this is how you do. It. I still remember it to this day. This is how you do it. Um, and <laughs> I I I ever since I've been very grateful to you because that oh. was my first reading, and I had someone who was much more experienced than me that I've done a, a good job. So well, so I. Ooh. Fifteen years I, later, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you would you owe it all to me. That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> I do, I do. Ever since I, uh, you know, ever since I've kept an eye on what you've been doing. So, I don't specifically remember that, but I remember you. I do remember. I don't remember giving you that compliment. I guess I just subconsciously I I delete all the good things I do, and I only remember the the irritating things I do. On it, I do. On I do remember your your reading being very good. And the reasons I remember your reading being very good is, A, I do remember there was another reader who was all over the map and was hard to listen to. Mm. I also remember going up there and it, I hadn't done many readings by then either. And I realized when I opened the book on the stage to read from it, that I hadn't actually really looked at it in the book and that the type was so small and there wasn't a lot of light. And I suddenly realized, oh, you have to sort of prepare a little bit for these. You got to read over them. I thought I could just go, oh, I read it. I can, you know, have some fun with it. But I remember panicking and sweating that the I was going to have to actually read these this small type. I, I actually had a question in terms of that past as, a, as an arts journalist and hmm. theater writer, which is I'll actually I can outsource this question to someone you may know uh, by the name of Olivia Newton John. Um, looking at the subjects of your books, and your books are very heavy and intense mm -hmm. by by necessity. Mm -hmm. But have you never been mellow? Have you never wanted to write something very light and oh. silly and a little more like yeah. just in the sense of like, do you worry that you are in this lane that is so serious? Yeah. But you have these other you know, you have theater, you have arts, you have literature that maybe um, you would want to write about at a, in a longer form. So Nathan, the short answer is no. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, and I, I'll tell you why, because I actually can do, like I have written about my fascination with Olivia Newton-John as a child and as a teen and even as a middle-aged man uh, and Barbara Streisand and other, other sort of gay divas um, in, in works of journalism. I mean, I referenced some of that in my first book, but in, in I've written, you know, for 
like back back in the day when I used to freelance, um, I would I would I would do these little quick hits that are lighter mm-hmm. in tone, and they were, I'll be honest, they were like pocketbook, <laughs> like they were they were they were they were uh, you know what the Victorians would call pot boilers. I mean, they just they keep the lights on, and um, sure. and um, but I I I discovered that I can do some of these lighter things, but not in book form. So. Oh, the things that speak to me that it's sort of out of the out of the themes of my books. I'll give you. I've been doing documentaries for ideas. I've done two. Mm-hmm. One of them uh, is serious, but it about the Queen of Sheba, who's is she real? Is she mythical? She appears in all sort of uh, in sort of uh, three in the Quran, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, uh, New Testament, and um, and then in a history of demonization of love. she you know she she morphs from being a queen to being this seductress um and it was a fun thing to do to explore how her image changed over the years and how um particularly how she you know how she's revered in parts of uh, east africa and 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 because obviously there's a claim yemeni also claim her but um, this, you know, just recently I did a documentary on Wilkie Collins, who was the subject of my uh, PhD. Mm. So I was able to revisit that world of Victorian literature that I, for like five years, I immersed myself in. So I can do these things. I, I can fulfill that part of my life through these shorter, I don't know if radio documentaries take months and months, but but they're not the same time commitment and emotional commitment that a book requires. Um, I mean, uh, I, I would still like to do another one or two books, um, uh, before, before I retire. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I, I, I feel that there's a lot in the world that is not being said or not being covered, um, or not being addressed. And I just feel that it would be, it would be a shame not to do it. Uh, I, I'm not saying that the whole point of literature or writing is to uh, raise alarm bells or to raise awareness of issues, but but it's, it's it's there's a reason why I do nonfiction, and it's the language or it's a language that I'm most comfortable with. Um, mm. It's a style that that appeals to me. Like many nonfiction, I tried fiction. Like I I spent 13 days writing a novel that I then you know, <laughs> deleted. Well, I said never again. Um, did you I, actually I, you know, delete it? Did you really delete it, or did you? Wow, that's that's a commitment. File. I, I did print it, but then deleted the file. Oh, I and, see. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> but God knows who that what that what those uh, those fifty pages are now. It just wasn't. It wasn't native to my time. It wasn't just a gen. It wasn't something that I felt at home in. Mm-hmm. I love reading fiction, obviously, and um, but when it comes to writing. I think the only language I speak is nonfiction, and I am very comfortable with that. I'm happy with that, um, and I do like serious nonfiction uh, more than um, than. I, I mean, all yeah. I mean, I just don't want to not necessarily make it like there's a serious and unserious nonfiction, but but the kind of nonfiction that are that have to do with regional politics, with race, with representation. Um, I mean. Sp- speak to me I, I i feel in a way i feel a calling to do these books and i can and if I, 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 like i'll tell you why i feel that way and because i have the the comfort and support of academia 
to back me up. I don't have to worry about where my next paycheck is coming from. Mm -hmm. I have a job that pays me reasonably well that that I don't need I don't need to sort of think of commercial avenues to do my work. I mean, none of my books are necessarily, uh, I think only one of my three books has ever recouped its advance. <laughs> so that's the first one. And only because it was on Canada Reads. Um, but the other two have never even recouped their modest advances. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they're they're very, like, they won awards and they, they, they got good reviews, um, particularly Brown. But they're not bestsellers in the traditional sense of bestseller. So, so I can use that comfortable position of being an academic uh, or working in academia um, to almost subsidize these books that are, mm. in my opinion, are necessary to be out there in the world um, and uh, may not necessarily uh, make a lot of money and may even be may disappear. Like in a couple of years, there may not be any copies of Brown and, or Intolerable um, uh, in circulation. But, you know, I feel proud that I put them out in the world. It would almost seem like a like a waste of of a privilege to then to do something that's just fun or indulgent or not not pushing a discussion forward yeah. or pushing a conversation forward in a serious way. I, I you know, I, I I don't want your listeners to think that I am like a, a stuffed shirt who uh, has, <laughs> doesn't know how to laugh or, or doesn't enjoy. No, life but it or... makes some sense. It makes some sense that like um, the, it, there's almost a sense of responsibility to yeah. the, the the discussion to yeah. to not yeah. So we I, I just, we we probably can't expect intolerable brown return Olivia. To be your, uh, to, to be your earth. I would, you know, I would love to do uh, like uh, I probably wouldn't do it, but I would love to do something like in a collection of essays about you know mm -hmm. gay divas or someone, and I will do the chapter on Olivia, but I, I wouldn't write a full book. Right. Um, well, editors of anthologies, if you're listening yes, to this, exactly, you know, exactly. you know exactly where to find Kamal. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to ask you was it was uh, again about return, and you had mentioned earlier you, you had said something about. You know, even the era of the long gone era of 2019 mm. being seeming slightly uh, more optimistic. Um, I would even posit that I spotted something in the introduction to return that also suggested an earlier, more optimistic time, which is you say something that uh, at this point when Trump is firmly in the dustbin of history. Mm. And I read that and I thought, <laughs> hmm. Wasn't that a great time two years ago or three years ago when we we all knew that Trump was gone and that with that whole yeah. nonsense and madness was over? That also suggests that there maybe needs to be a new afterword or a revised edition or a an annotated edition. Man, I'd be lucky if that book even stays in print. I mean, it. it I mean, a book like this. I feel like asking. Um, there's a book that came out in the during the pandemic actually came out has had has actually come out. It's like if a tree falls in the forest, is anyone here? That kind of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's it was it was originally published. It's due to be published in 2020, and then it was published pushed back uh, for a number of reasons to 2021, in the height of the pandemic. With you know you weren't able to promote it. Uh, like in mm -hmm. terms of festivals uh, or talk about it, and and as you know, you know coverage of books and you know keeps getting uh let's keep shrinking um and even though it did you know i 
you know, I did a fair number of interviews about it and um, in, in high profile things like The Current uh, and God bless them, The Current like aired it like three times. Uh, still, it's still, <laughs> not, still not like, not, you know, it's like there was a, there was an old joke about um, an album by the Bee Gees. I think it was their soundtrack for um, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely House Club Band. It's like, it shipped gold and was returned platinum. Um, and I feel like this is, this is the case with return. It's like, oh my God, there's more uh, There's more returns than coffee salt. Um, and I just, I like, honestly, I don't, I don't think this book will get a new forward or to, 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 to address it. But, but that sentence, it's funny you should say that because, you know, wow, the naivete of that moment to think mm. that that that's the case but also mo mostly the glimmers of hope in the chapter set in israel and palestine but i didn't go to gaza i went to the west bank because even back then i you know gaza was was a would have required um some um so just more more um like that i didn't have necessarily the time or uh, or the contacts there it was it was a, it was a big bigger hurdle Whereas crossing mm -hmm. the West Bank was much easier, but even then there was still the hope that there could be a two-state solution or there could be some kind of peace. Um, um, this, you know, despite this, despite this, you know, the many stories that 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 are that, that come from you know either settlers or very anti-Israeli uh, uh, Palestinians. Um, but there was still thinking. There was still there was still a time when you could go and visit and travel between the two. Um, I honestly don't think that. I mean, that time has gone. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I feel. But I'm. 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 In many ways, I'm glad I did that because the whole conflict really returns about like revolves around the the concept of who has the right to return and claim that land. Yeah, it. It reminds me of there was a joke going around someone had posted on twitter or somewhere that uh you know the billy joel song we didn't start the fire that you could you could write an entirely new revised version of it but just based on the events of the last three months <laughs> like there's <laughs> been so much of world shaking significance since you know late september 2023 yeah. it also makes me wonder if that editor that that originally wanted a different title for the book maybe it was a bad move to call the book return because you were just mm. tempting fate with the mm. concept of returns in publishing right. <laughs> that you were it's like calling yeah. your album bad you were going to you were oh, just yes. you were tempting fate with that only michael jackson can get away with that so <laughs> you know what that, that was mentioned to me about intolerable that it it's a bad title because you get a lot of read a lot of puns being saying this is an intolerable read or something and but I was so wedded to that title that nothing could change me. It could change my mind about it. Yeah. And it, you completely proved those people wrong, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it's a different conversation. Like another, your, your next podcast series is like writers talking about their first book. You uh, yes, do, you yeah. have to do that, Nathan, because I have a very, very uneasy relationship with that first book. Okay, and that's for another podcast. What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. 
Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.